You know, with the culture going the way in the direction that it is, there's a lot of people who have ideas of who Jesus of Nazareth really was. Is he a recycled redeemer? Is he a copycat messiah? On the Let's Get Real podcast with Rob Lundberg this week and the following weeks, we're going to start addressing the issues of who Jesus really is and who he really was in his earthly life. So let's get real on who Jesus truly is. listening to the Let's Get Real podcast with Rob Lundberg. Thank you for tuning in this week. Um, you know, this, I, I, don't, I don't know if you really see this or not. I hope you do. If not, you probably need to get your head out from underneath the pillow and look around you. And if you've ever tried sharing your faith with anybody, chances are you haven't really done apologetics until you start talking about Jesus. And a lot of times what happens is when you go and you start talking about the weather and you start talking about certain things and you get that opening door, that softball that comes right in the, in the wheelhouse and you bring up Jesus, all of a sudden people go and start saying, oh, where'd he come from? You know, don't you know that zeitgeist and Jesus is nothing more than a copycat messiah or a recycled redeemer? Don't you know that he was a mythological person in human history, just like Addis and Dionysus and Mithras and all the others? What I want to do in the next two weeks or so is I want to deal with who Jesus really is. And what I want to do today is I want to knock down this whole idea that Jesus is a recycled redeemer or a copycat messiah. If I didn't introduce the program right now, uh, let me do that. Then you're listening to the Let's Get Real podcast with Rob Lundberg. You know, I am convinced that if you go out and you start sharing your faith and you bring Jesus up, you're going to probably get some of those things I just mentioned. But who is Jesus? I will tell you that he is a person of history, as you will hear in the tail end of our program today. But what I want to do today is I want to deal with this whole idea of the question of the mythologies that come head-on against Christianity. You know, not too long ago, well, several years ago now, I, I was talking to a believer who was a customer of mine. And he was actually rattled by this video that's out there called Zeitgeist, The Greatest Story Ever Sold. I think it's still on the web. But, you know, I really think today because we don't teach doctrine in churches, we don't teach about who Jesus is. 30% of the people sitting in pews today are actually questioning to themselves deep down within them, I wonder if my pastor really believes why he believes what he's preaching. That's right, I said it. So what I want to do, I may go over 30 minutes today, depending on how this goes, but I want to deal with this whole question of who Jesus is and who he isn't. He's not a recycled redeemer. He is not a copycat messiah. You know, 
many Christians today, I think, because of all this stuff going on in our culture, have misplaced their confidence in who Jesus is because of these myths that are out there, that they exist. Maybe not. Maybe they have. But there is a reason ancient mystical accounts of the life of Jesus of Nazareth do not start with the phrase, once upon a time. Upon looking at it, if you look at it on the face of it, the authors did not appear to be writing fairy tales for future generations, but rather detailed accounts of extraordinary events in the life of a particular Jewish carpenter who actually changed the course of world history. You know, when you look at Luke's account, in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we read this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me, as well as having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know, keyword, the exact truth about the things you have been taught. You know, when we go and we see the very beginning of that, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, in John's account, we see two striking claims that a bookend of his gospel record. The first one is found in the first few verses of chapter 1 and then also in chapter 20 because I think there's 21 chapters in John. Anyway, in John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14 tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And at the end of John 20, we read, Many other miraculous signs Jesus also performed in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Each of these ancient biographies of Jesus, along with the other gospel accounts that give any breadth of detail about the Nazarene, even Mark and Matthew's gospel, they proceed in very similar fashion. First, the authors are clearly aware that they are relating a remarkable story about a remarkable man who did remarkable things. Secondly, it is clear that they were convinced that the events in their accounts were events that really happened. These were not sacred stories of the netherworld gods or the ethereal supernatural heroes, but they were actual reports of historical events involving flesh and blood people and their, with their feet firmly planted on the ground on the earth. The gospel writers also intended to report history and not mythology. Their accounts include the vivid detail of an observer who had eyewitnessed the events personally, or a chronicler who had obtained the information from people who were actually there, yet they were, are not merely reports, but folks' arguments meant to persuade, citing evidence to prove their claims. 
these facts on their own don't make the accounts true, of course, but they do seem to place these writings in a class of ancient literature that doesn't allow them to be dismissed for frivolous reasons. Yet, this is exactly what we are seeing happening today. You know, if you deal with the whole idea of once upon a time, you know, the internet is littered with allegations that the historical records of the life of Jesus of Nazareth are examples of a kind of religious plagiarism. A mere rehashing of dying and rising God fictions of ancient mythology, a recycling of you know, common details found in dozens of mystery religions in the ancient world around the time of Christ. Simply just go on the web and Google, if you will, Mithras, Dionysius, Osiris, Adonis, Attis, or even Isis. And folks, you're going to get buried in an avalanche of evidence linking the divine teacher from Galilee with a host of characters allegedly manufactured from the same mythic material. And then most of the well-known attempt is a flashy documentary. I mentioned it in the very beginning here called Zeitgeist, The Greatest Story Ever Sold. Folks, that, folk, that video went viral and it's really done a lot of damage uh, in our culture today to churches because we don't teach apologetics and we don't teach this stuff. But according to that video, Zeitgeist, ancient hieroglyphics supposedly tell us that the anthropomorphized Egyptian sun god Horus. They tell us about this. And, and, and of course, Horus was supposedly born on December 25th of the Virgin Isis, who was depicted as Mary. His birth was accompanied by a star in the east, and in turn, three kings followed to locate and adore the newborn savior. And at age 12, he was a prodigal child teacher. At the age, at the age of 30, he was a baptized by a figure known as Adap, who was supposedly John the Baptist, and thus began his ministry. And Horus had 12 disciples who traveled with him about performing miracles, such as healing the sick, walking on water, raising the dead. Horus was also given terms like uh, these gestural names, if you will, the truth, the light, God's anointed son, the good shepherd, the lamb, and many others. And then after being betrayed by Typhon, Horus was crucified, buried three days, and was thus resurrected. You know, Zeitgeist also brings forth many other gods and these claims that are very, very similar. For example, Attis, uh, 1200 BC, born of a virgin on December 25th, was crucified, was dead for three days and resurrected. Krishna, 900 BC, born of a virgin with a star in the east to signal his birth, performed miracles, died, and resurrected. Dionysius, 500 B.C., born of a virgin on December 25th, performed miracles like turning water into wine, was referred to as the king of kings, the god, God's only begotten son, and was allegedly resurrected. And then, of course, most popular was the one on Mithras. Mithras was right around 1200 B.C. and supposedly born of a virgin. On December 25th, had 12 disciples, born, did miracles, uh, was crucified, supposedly, or made dead for three days, dead for three days, resurrected, was known as the truth and the life, and was worshipped on Sunday. 
Now, Osiris was the husband of Isis in the Egyptian pantheon of deities, and it's another contender for a dying and rising god. The broad claim, simply put in the words of Sir Lee Teabing in Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, is this, quote, nothing in Christianity is original, end of quote. Now, Folks, this is a taxing topic because of the sheer volume of alleged comparisons advanced by the skeptics out there. The process is complicated by the many variations of these ancient myths generating in their retelling. Books like Ron Nash's scholarly The Gospel and the Greeks or Lee Strobel's popular work The Case for the Real Jesus spend a lot of time, a good time in fact, answering the particulars and at the risk, at, at the interest of time for our show today, I just want to advance a general response in this broad challenge to the reliability of the canonical accounts of Jesus' life. In general, the dispute entails the factual claims certain mythological accounts that predate the Gospels contain elements matching the details of Jesus' life and a logical literary claim. The existence of older accounts provo- uh, proves that the account of Jesus is myth as well, being cobbled together with bits and pieces of these old stories. This is what we're going to respond to, okay? Now, what I just summarized for you, there are three significant problems with this argument that should be enough to put it to rest forever. The first two speak to the factual claims, and the last, which will be the most decisive, addresses the logical assertion Let's first talk about failed facts. First, the fact is that the facts, quote-unquote, listed that I just mentioned are almost all false, nearly to the point of embarrassment. Let me give you several examples. First, there is no record of Osiris rising bodily from the dead. Instead, he became a god of the netherworld. As one put it, Osiris is not a dying god, but a dead god, always depicted as deceased, as a deceased mummified king. He may be alive in the spirit realm, but this would be true of anyone passing into the next life whose physical body lies in decay in the tomb. Indeed, Egyptian religion had no concept of resurrection, only of immortality beyond the grave. And these are two entirely different concepts altogether. They don't know anything about resurrection, but they do know about immortality. Well, that's what they believe anyway. Secondly, Horus was not born of a virgin, but was the son of Osiris and Isis, not Mary. Horus never dies, so he can never have a resurrection. Though in his union with Ra, the sun god, one could say he dies every night and is resurrected every morning. Clearly, though, this is no help to the copycat messiah crowd. Thirdly, Neither the Bible nor Christianity claimed Jesus was born on December 25th. I kind of chuckled about that earlier. So any parallels of ancient myths are completely inconsequential. The date was chosen by the Emperor Aurelian in, in the 3rd century. Mithras, fourthly, was not born of a virgin, but emerged from a rock. And there are no textual pieces of evidence of his death, so there could be no resurrection. 
Mithras was a god, not a teacher, so he had no disciples. Fifth, there is no evidence of an account of a bodily resurrection of Attis, the Phrygian god of the vegetation. And six, there is no evidence of a virgin birth of Dionysius. And lastly, Krishna was his mother's eighth son, so his virgin birth is unlikely. When we look at the dating of many of these dying and rising deities, we see a second obstacle, and here is the problem. It is axiomatic that the recycled version must appear in history after one it allegedly came from, not before. Let me say that again. It is axiomatic that the recycled version must appear in history after the one it allegedly came from and not before. However, many mythical accounts of dying and rising gods actually post-date the time of Christ. There is no evidence, for example, there is no evidence of the influence of Mithraism in the Roman Empire until essentially the end of the first century A.D., Secondly, the sacrifice of a bull by some Mithraists allegedly mimicked the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Folks, that shows up in the 2nd century AD. Thirdly, there are the four texts that cite the resurrection of Adonis. They date from the 2nd to the 4th centuries AD. And the account of the miraculous birth of Zoroaster dates to the 9th century A.D. Christianity was well established after the 1st century. The most academically exhaustive work, a ponderous title of that is called The Riddle of Resurrection by Trevg Medinger, concludes that even though some myths of dying and rising gods may predate the Christian era, the claims made regarding Jesus of Nazareth are distinct from them in three critical ways. And here are those three ways. First, Jesus was not myth. He was flesh and blood and fully human, and his resurrection happened in history at a precise topographical location on earth. Number two, the mythical resurrected deities are invariably tied to the seasons of the agricultural cycle of dying and rising repeatedly every calendar year, while Jesus' resurrection was only a one-time event unrelated to seasonal changes. And number three, Jesus died as a vicarious sacrifice for sins. He was yours and my substitute. There is no evidence of such an atonement in any of the mythological accounts. Menninger also sums it up this way. He says this, As far as I'm aware, there is no prima facie evidence that the death and resurrection of Jesus is a mythological construct, drawing on the myths and rites of the dying and rising gods of the surrounding world. While studied with profit against the background of Jewish resurrection belief, the faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus retains its unique character in the history of religions.
So let's put it this way. Secondly, under the big heading, you're, you're familiar with skunks and the smell of skunks? Well, I'm folks, secondly, I'm smelling a skunk in the woodpile. And that is this. In his work, Gospel in the Greeks, Ron Nash offers a handful of suggestions to protect the novice from being misled by dubious factual claims. What you need to do is you need to check the evidences in primary sources. Do not settle for website citing a website that cites a website. Web postings run in a circle and each quoting others without ever citing. Try to get as close to the original source as you can to reduce the chance of facts getting distorted in the retelling. The best source you have for going and talking about the details of Jesus, we have over 5,800 Greek manuscripts, is the gospel records themselves. Make sure the evidence comes from an established authority in the field who, was, who has access to the original material. Also, something you need to do is you need to check the dates. Check the dates, because when you check the dates, you're going to be sure that the original records, not the original myth, predate the accounts that allegedly borrowed from them. Even the ancient tales get amended from time to time. Determines, thirdly, if the parallels are really parallel and significant. Similarities are frequently overstated and oversimplified. Many are inconsequential, like the claim ancient gods were born on December 25th. Some accounts trade on the kinship of phrases like birth of the sun versus birth of the S-O-N sun. So the first one would be birth of the S-U-N versus birth of the S-O-N. This wordplay often works though when rendered in English, a language that developed millennia after these events. Another thing we need to do, folks, I hate to say it, but we need to be, be, be careful or beware of Christian language and terms being read back into the ancient account. What do I mean by this? Some refer to the death of Osiris as his passion, employing the Christian terminology to imply a similarity that doesn't even exist. Any death can be called a passion, even when the passions themselves are wildly dissimilar. Also, no one should be impressed when ancient sun gods are called, quote, the light, end quote. As it turns out, Regarding the factual claims, once the primary sources of the ancient myths are consulted, a host of alleged similarities turn out to be fiction. The parallels remaining are usually far too general to be significant. And further, the dating of many of the ancient records completely undermines the arguments because the stories appear too late in history to have any influence upon the Gospels. But that's not the worst of it. Even if the characterizations of the myths were accurate, that Mithras was born of a virgin and Osiris was resurrected from the death, and let's go along with Horus, Horus had dozens of disciples, and you know, Dionysius turned water into wine, and look, hey, Addis was crucified. Let's throw all that in there. There is something else fundamentally wrong with the zeitgeist challenge. Because even if the facts were accurate, they prove nothing.
and here's why. It is a titanic coincidence, but figure it with me this way. In 1898, Morgan Robertson published a novel entitled Futility. The story was a fictional account of a transatlantic voyage of a cruise ship called Titan, traveling between England and New York, the largest vessel afloat displacing 45,000 tons, the Titan was considered virtually unsinkable. Yet in the middle of the night in April, with three massive propellers driving the ship forward at an excessive speed of 25 knots, it collided with an iceberg and sunk. Since the number of lifeboats was a minimum, the law required though twice that which was needed for 3,000 capacity, more than half of the passengers perished. Fourteen years later, in April, the world's largest luxury liner, notice the difference, 1898, and 14 years later, 14 years later, in April, the world's largest luxury liner, with a displacement of 45,000 tons, the indestructible Titanic departed from England on a transatlantic voyage to New York. In the middle of the night, the Titanic's triple screws drove the ship at an excess of speed at nearly 25 knots into an iceberg and sunk. Since the Titanic was fitted with less than half the number of lifeboats needed for its 3,000 capacity, the minimum law required. More than half of the passengers were lost. Now, two stories. But this real-life coincidence makes a crucial point. Regardless of the similarities between the two accounts of the different events, the second cannot be similarly dismissed as an, an invention simply because the first turns out to be fiction. Whether or not the details of the Titanic's disaster are accurate is determined by its own body of evidence. Unrelated to the fictional story of the ill-fated Titan, the fiction story which came before. This is a critical procedural point, one best described by the great C.S. Lewis. Notice what he says. Suppose I think that after doing my accounts that I have a large balance at the bank. And suppose you want to find out whether this belief of mine is wishful thinking. Your only chance of finding out is to sit down and work through the sum yourself. If you find my arithmetic wrong, then it may be relevant to explain how I came to be so bad at arithmetic, but only after... You have yourself done the sum and discovered me to be wrong on purely mathematical grounds. In other words, you must show that a man is wrong before you start explaining why he's wrong. Lewis's insight applies to our challenge today. Remember the claim in the question. Ancient myths explain the origin of the Jesus myth. The second false account was inspired by the first ones. Do you see the misstep here? The New Testament account is presumed to be false. Then the ancient accounts are invoked 
to explain the fiction. Let me say that again. The New Testament account is presumed false. Then the ancient accounts are invoked to explain the fiction. The argument of Zeitgeist turns out to be circular, assuming what it tends to prove. Imagine yourself, if you will, introducing yourself to a stranger and sharing bits of autobiography only to be labeled a liar and an imposter. His evidence? In the three past months, 12 other phonies tried to pawn off the same story on him. When you offer identification, he ignores it. He's already passed judgment and assumed you are a fraud like the rest, no matter how bona fide of evidence that you provide. In addition of, to being offended, you probably are mystified. Clearly, he can't prove that you are lying about your identity by citing others who lied about theirs. No imposter of the past could logically foreclose on the possibility that you might be the genuine real McCoy. That must be decided on separate grounds. To paraphrase Lewis, one has to show that a person is lying before it makes sense to speculate on where the lie comes from. In the same way, one first has to show that Jesus is fiction before he starts explaining how the fiction came to be. Even if someone produced a thousand parallels of Jesus from the writings of antiquity, that alone would not prove that he was just another phony. If the similarities were remarkable, it might raise the eyebrows and invite a closer look. But it would do nothing on its own to disqualify Christ. Only shortcomings with specific historical evidence for Jesus can do that. Now, the zeitgeist approach is an evasion, not an argument. It is not good enough to assume Jesus is a myth and then speculate on the genesis of the error. The primary source historical documents about him, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, must be dealt with first, not dismissed with misleading talk about alleged literary relationships with ancient and dying, rising gods. Jesus was a man of history. Professional historians do not believe the New Testament account is merely a retelling of ancient myth. Though not endorsing every detail of the gospel records, most academics reject the supernatural elements for the philosophical reasons. Scholars both liberal and conservative, overwhelmingly agree that Jesus of Nazareth was a man of history. Will Durant, the Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, co-authored with his wife the most successful work in history, the 11-volume Story of Civilization. In Christ and Caesar, in spite of many suspicious resemblances to the legends of pagan gods, Durant concludes this. Despite the prejudices and theological preconceptions of the evangelists, talking about the gospel writers, they record many incidents that many inventors would have concealed. No one reading these scenes can doubt the reality of the figure behind them. That a few simple men in one generation have invented so powerful and appealing a personality, so lofty an ethic, and so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood, that would be a miracle far more incredible 
than any recorded in the Gospels. After two centuries of higher criticism, the outlines of the life and character and teachings of Jesus remain reasonably clear and constitute the most fascinating feature in the history of Western man. The challenge and zeitgeist is why we should consider the stories of Mithras, Horus, Attis, and others as fables, yet treat as factual the similar story told of a Jewish carpenter, Jesus of Nazareth? The answer is pretty simple. There is no good evidence for the authenticity of any mythological characters of these dying and rising gods and their deeds. But there is an abundance of such evidence for Jesus. And if the historical documentation for the man from Nazareth is compelling, then it does not matter how many ancient myths share similarities. The Apostle Paul readily acknowledged that if Jesus' resurrection was a myth and the witnesses were trading in lies, then Christians were a pitiful lot. We, were, we would be fools, and might I add, because it cost many of them their lives. Nothing in the zeitgeist recycled redeemer theory, however, suggests Christians have misplaced their confidence. The skeptics' facts are unreliable and their thinking is unsound, so their challenge is doubly dead. According to their own testimony, the New Testament writers were not following cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power of his coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's in 2 Peter chapter 1. 116, written by the Apostle Peter. Yet they were testifying not to myths, but to sober truth around the events that had not been done in a corner. What we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes and our ears have heard and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and what we have seen and testify and proclaim to you, the eternal life which is with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. That's John in the very first part of his first letter in 1 John, the very first verses. And what I have heard and read with my eyes and encountered on June 26th of 1980, I proclaim him to you, Jesus, my Lord and my Savior. You've been listening to the Let's Get Real podcast with Rob Lundberg. Thank you for tuning in. Next week, we're going to compare and contrast Jesus with a few of the religious leaders. We'll probably do this in two parts, but I want you to deal with the fact that we have today is a pursuit for religious pluralism. And because we have this in culture, I want to knock down this whole thing on who Jesus is and who he was in contrast to some of the great religious teachers. And when I use that term great, I'm talking about quantitatively, not necessarily qualitative, except maybe Moses, which we'll deal with next week. So until next week, I pray you all have a very blessed and happy Thanksgiving. May it be a time of reflection during this COVID time. 
And as you go out, as you have opportunity, maybe around the Thanksgiving table, make sure you go. Let your words be seasoned with salt that you may be able to share Jesus with clarity, with character, and with wisdom. But more importantly, as you go out, as you prepare for the holiday, as you go out even after the holiday, as you go out maybe on Black Friday, until we're back next week, Lord willing, go out and give them heaven, and we'll be back with you next week. Lord bless. Lord bless.